So we go back a long way. Um, yeah, as Pastor Jason mentioned, I have been teaching Bible study here at this church for 40 years. The first class, if you can believe it, back in the day in Southern Baptist circles, uh, classes were divided. Men taught men, women taught women. I don't know if many remember that, but probably most of you don't. But I had the opportunity and the privilege to teach the first co-ed class. And it was in the old church, and we were in the kitchen. And I know Jim Skelly was in the class. And when you stood up, you'd bang into the pots and pans if you weren't careful. True story. So I'm going to talk this evening about uh, the Son of Man in, in parts of Matthew. But before I do that, I want to tell you a little bit about my history. And I usually get emotional when I do this, but anyhow. So I'm a lawyer by profession, retired now. Uh, started in Daytona Beach after a couple of years on managing the Orlando office uh, for a small law firm. Uh, our insurance agent invites Pam and I to come to First Baptist Orlando. We start going there. He wanted us to hear his son sing in the church band. Okay. Uh, and we got interested and we got involved and we had great Bible teachers there, spiritual parents, Barbara and Jean Kelsey. He later built our house back in Ormond Beach. Anyhow, uh, I got saved in October of 1977 and I was 30 years old and uh, now you're going to need to get baptized, Greg. And I'm going, well, I'm an adult. I mean, and my parents didn't want me to get baptized. They said, you got baptized. No, I got christened as a child. And very soon I learned that you needed to be baptized after salvation, not before. And you did it in obedience to Jesus Christ. He was baptized, and we follow Jesus and do what he does and think like he does, or as, as close as we can get to doing that. So at the same time this is going on, Pam and I wanted to have a family, and we couldn't have biological kids of our own. So we said, let's adopt. So we applied to the Children's Home Society, and... Uh, one Memorial Day weekend, 45 years ago, this, this Memorial Day, they called us up and said, come down and pick up your baby, Bryce. And we did. And months, weeks later, I get my baptismal certificate from the church. And it says, I got baptized April 9, Sunday evening service, 1978. And they go, wait a minute, that date sounds so familiar. We look at Bryce's birth certificate, April 9, 7, 10 p.m., he was born the same time I was baptized, the same time. And to me as a young Christian that said, God is real, Jesus is real, and God will reward and bless you if you are obedient to him. And that was a lesson I always remembered, and I always, always try to employ to be obedient to God, do God's will. And so the next thing that happened is for evil reasons, really, and I don't want to get into it, but uh, the senior... Pat, uh, the senior member of my firm uh, closed the office in Orlando. So we moved back to Ormond. And so, okay, we're back here. And we got involved in this church. And soon after we got here, the adoption agency says, we have a girl for you. And they say, if you hadn't had moved to Volusia County, you wouldn't have been able to have Heather because she was born in Seminole County. And they didn't put babies in the same counties. So, we, so, you know, God, man makes his plans, God directs his paths. God directed us back here. If this law, law, lawyer had not canceled the office, we wouldn't have had Heather. And so we came back here, and so I said, okay, another year goes by, and I go, I'm going to start my own law firm. And we're moving to Orlando. We love living in Orlando. Um, love the church there. Put the house for sale. And I was a bit of a, 
what would you say, Pam? I was kind of set in my ways, a little dogmatic, unduly positive about the price of the house. So we couldn't sell it. And again, you know, man plans his ways, God directs his paths. And so we didn't sell it, and we couldn't sell it. And so I said, at that time, I was maturing as a Christian. And I said, well, you know, maybe God wants us to stay here. Maybe that's part of God's plan. And the church was having some real issues at that time. We, have, we were without a pastor, uh, and then we had a pastor named Herb Revis come in who was Reformed Theology, Doctrines of Grace, and the leadership in the church didn't like it at all. And they really forced him out, preparing the way for Pastor Roy. So I came to the conclusion, along with Pam, that God needed my talent, my time, my tithe here in this body. So we made a commitment to this church, and we've been here from the pots and pans to the podium, okay? And it only took 40 years. So that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, and it's been a great ride. And now I was thrilled that it, a great opportunity for Pastor Scott to ask me to, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a teacher, I haven't been to seminary, um, but I am in the Word. And so we're going to start tonight with uh, the question, who is the Son of Man? And when I first began studying this, uh, I said to myself, well, wait a minute. Jesus is the son of God, but he is also the son of man. And MacArthur points this out, that Jesus referred to himself 83 times in the Gospels as the son of man. He was the only one who did. His disciples never referred to him as the son of man. Uh, Mark refers to it. Matthew, John, all of the Gospel writers use this term. The son of man, the son of man, the son of man. And this was what Jesus called himself. It was his favorite self-designation. And uh, in fact, when, when Stephen, the first martyr, is being stoned to death, in Acts 7.56, he says, Behold, I see the Lamb of God sitting at the right, the land, son of man sitting at the right hand of God. Again, a reference to Jesus Christ as the son of man. So... The Son of Man reflects his humanity, his humility, and his everlasting glory. And let's look at a few verses in regard to that. Matthew 8.18 reads, And when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Now, why would Jesus want to leave when there were great multitudes about him? Well, Jesus needed to share the gospel with Gentiles as well as Jews, because where was he going? He was in Capernaum, a Jewish city. He was preparing to cross the Sea of Galilee to the country of the Gergasims, which is a Gentile city. One of the great mysteries that Jesus revealed in the New Testament was the fact that the Messiah was not as the Jews believed, just for the Jews. One of the great mysteries revealed by Jesus Christ was that he was the Messiah for Jew and Gentile. Jew and Gentile. So he had to share the gospel not only with Jewish cities, but also with Gentile cities. So he had to go over there to the other side. Another reason for leaving, uh, Jesus was testing the zealousness of his followers. You know, it's, it's easy to follow someone if they're next door. But how about if you have to leave hearth and home and travel to the other side of the sea to a Gentile city when you were a Jew? So Jesus wanted to see how many, how many followers were going to follow him. So that's why he went to the other side, to share the gospel, to share his teachings with Gentiles. And that didn't go over too well either. If Another verse further on, if you read, you'll find out what he did over there. And they didn't like him. They asked him to leave. Anyhow, 
Matthew 8, 19 says, Then a certain scribe said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And so, as a lawyer, uh, I kind of uh, align myself somewhat with the scribes because they were the lawyers of the day. Okay? Um, and I did some research about scribes and where they were mentioned in Scripture. And the scribes were the learned men who could read and write. This is a very uh, different society than 2,000 years ago than it was today. Uh, only a few people could read and write. And they studied the law. What was the law? The law is contained in the first five books of the Bible. Uh, and that is called the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five, tuch meaning scrolls. It's also called the lower law of Moses, the laws of Moses, the first five books. And uh, <clears throat> it's also referred to as the Torah. So these scribes, they studied the Old Testament. And then they also studied, and they understood the law, the rabbinical writings. Because what the Jews did over 2,000 years, they would, uh, they would take the Old Testament law, and they had rabbinical writings, which they called the Torah. And these were writings that were extra-biblical, but they were taught to explain and elaborate on the law. For example, uh, one of the commandments was to remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Pretty simple, right? But the rabbinical writings in the, in the, uh, contained in the Torah contained 300, 400 extra-biblical things about what you could do and couldn't do on the Sabbath day. And so that's what these scribes just studied. And they studied Old Testament prophecy. They, were, uh, they, were, they quoted other authorities. They were secretaries to kings and prophets. Uh, they were considered to be wise. They were notaries. Uh, there's a reference in Scripture that one of them carried an inkhorn, whatever that is. What's well, inkhorn? I suspect is a place where you can get ink and you can write. So they wrote. They also were involved in uh, uh, public documents. They were religious teachers. Some of them were Pharisees. Uh, they wore long robes and they loved preeminence. Like many members of the Sanhedrin, they loved to be uh, looked at and gazed upon as being great, wise men. But uh, they were not of good character, uh, often attempting to trick Jesus. If you look in Matthew 26, 3, and I'll read that verse, 26, 3, you'll see that uh, these men... <clears throat> Then the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders of the people assembled at the palace of the high priest who was called Caliphas and plotted to take Jesus by trickery and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So they were not of good character. They attempted to trick Jesus. And uh, actually, Jesus in 2315 of Matthew, 2315 uh, says that, <clears throat> Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel and land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So Jesus condemned the scribes as hypocrites. And they, temp they tempted Jesus, and they were active in procuring his death. And uh, later on in Acts 4 or 5, it talks about how these scribes persecuted Christians. So... All, all of this goes to say this. It was very unusual, if not unique, for a scribe 
to approach Jesus and say, I will follow you. Nowhere else in the Bible is there any indication that a scribe ever attempted to follow Jesus Christ. And they were not friends of Jesus. They were enemies of Christ for the most part. So what was Jesus' response? What was his response? And in Matthew 8.20 it says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. What was Jesus saying to this scribe? What he was saying, if you follow me, it will be a life of poverty, inconvenience, hardship, difficulty. Does this not show you and I the vanity of pursuing worldly wealth? Does this also not show us the falseness of the prosperity doctrine? Jesus became poor. He laid aside his special place in heaven at the right hand of God. He took on human form as a common man, not a king. He died as a criminal, a criminal on a cross, so that we may become spiritually rich, adopted sons and daughters into the kingdom of God. We are not born into God's kingdom. Like my children, we are adopted by God into his heaven, into his kingdom, adopted. Not based on genealogy, not based on blood, based upon the call of Christ to you and I. So, how, how did Jesus know the scribe's heart, and how did he, how did he know that this scribe was not going to follow him? Uh, Matthew Henry, uh, one of the commentators that I read, points out that perhaps this scribe was thinking Jesus was going to bring a, bring a kingdom, and, and, and a kingdom that would conquer Rome and, and free the Jews finally and make them independent. Many of the Jews thought that. Many of the Jews wanted Jesus to be that kind of a king. But how did, how did Jesus know? Well, he is omniscient. He knows everything. But he knew his heart. And he knew that this scribe was not willing to take on this position. Not willing to give up his life. Remember, he was a man of well regard. He was considered to be uh, prominent, well-educated, wise. A person that wrote documents, that was involved in all elements of society. And uh, Jesus knew his heart. And... The scribe's offer to follow him was not genuine. It was a false profession of faith. This, this scribe, a man of knowledge who could read and write, would be a welcome disciple when compared to the fishermen, wouldn't he? Think of the disciples that Jesus had. Matthew, the Le a Levi, tax collector. And why was Matthew hated as a tax collector? Not because he simply collected taxes imposed by Rome. But what Matthew, in that time, as Levi could do, is he could go to you and I, and he could say, okay, Rome wants X. I want X plus Y from you, Stan. Or I want X plus Y plus Z from you, Bonnie. And that's why he was hated, because tax collectors were notoriously unreasonable, capricious, uh, and they did whatever they wanted to do. And there was no recourse. And that's why Matthew and all tax collectors back then were hated. And, that's, and that was why some of the people in the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, they, they hated Jesus as well because he was associating himself with tax collectors. Imagine that. And so they were very, very much critical of Jesus for having a disciple like Matthew as a tax collector. But Jesus knew, even though this would be a welcome addition, when you think about the fishermen, they didn't write, they didn't read, they weren't men of knowledge, they were considered... Uh, being a fisherman in that time was one of the lowest professions, probably next to being a shepherd. They were not highly regarded at all. 
and they were not learned men. They were not considered great men in their society. But Jesus knew the heart of this scribe, and he knew that he was not suited for the purpose, and Jesus knew it immediately. And that's why Jesus responded the way he did, because he knew the heart of the scribe. And Jesus knows our heart, and he knows your heart, and he knows my heart. And he knows when we are uh, falsely making statements, when we are falsely uh, making professions of faith, he knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. So, the real point of uh, what I want to talk about today is uh, this response of Jesus where he says, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Think about the fact that Jesus, throughout his three-year ministry, had to rely on strangers acquaintances, people to provide him food, clothing, shelter, a place to stay. He had no home. He had no money. He had no nothing. Uh, but what did Jesus reveal for the first time in responding to the, rescribe, the scribe's request to follow him? Let me ask you a question. Uh, <clears throat> would you agree that the disciples, and sometimes when I do this when I, when I teach a class, I, I ask questions and I expect the class to respond. Pastor Scott does this as well, but he's asking rhetorical questions. And I'm sitting in the audience, and he asks a rhetorical question. I'm, you know, I'm almost there. I'm almost going to respond. So you don't have to respond when I ask a question, because unlike when I teach a class, it's not a rhetorical question. These are rhetorical questions. So, Would you agree with me that the disciples were slow to understand that Jesus was the Messiah? Would you agree with me? But would you also agree with me that the gospel would not bring freedom from Rome as expected, but the gospel would eliminate the separation of God from man by the work of Christ on the cross. So I think you all would agree with me that, one, the disciples were slow to understand and know, despite three years of ministry, miracles, healing, raising the dead, the disciples were a little slow in understanding, first, that Jesus was the Messiah, and they were a little slow in understanding that Jesus, his gospel, was to eliminate the separation of God from man by the work of Christ on the cross. And you and I know that, that we are separated from God by the sin of Adam and by our own sin. And the only way that we can join with God and eliminate that separation is to be adopted by God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. So... I would say to you that the disciples were slow to understand this, and they were slow to understand that Jesus was bringing a kingdom of, to the heart and not to the world. It was not going to be a revolution against Rome. And uh, in fact, at the very end of Jesus' ministry, he asked them, who am I? Disciples, who am I? Who do you say I am? And it was Peter that said, you are the Messiah. But then he denied him three times. Remember? You are the Messiah, but I'm going to deny you three times. And I, I would suggest to you that it was only after the resurrection and Jesus continued teaching for 40 days as recorded in Acts 1-3 that the disciples fully understood that Jesus was the Messiah and what the gospel was all about and their role in spreading it. Now, one of the lessons we studied on Sunday was a, the parable of the mustard seed. Uh, I've never grown mustard. I've grown lots of other things, but I've never grown mustard. And I was talking to Brad about 
growing mustard seed. He had never has either. But a mustard seed is a tiny seed that grows to be 15 feet tall. And when you think about the mustard seed and the growth of the plant, that was an analogy, a parable that Jesus was explaining to his disciples. You are only 12 men. You're tiny as a mustard seed, but what you're going to do is going to grow and grow and grow, and you're going to become as tall as the mustard tree, which supplies shelter to birds 15 feet tall. Another parable. 39 parables. Jesus spoke all the time in parables. But what about the scribe? Now, I understand that the disciples did not understand what Jesus was saying when he said, I am the son of man, and he did it 83 times in the New Testament. I understand the disciples didn't get that, but what about the scribe? Should the scribe have understood what Jesus was referring to? Shouldn't they know that when he said he was the son of man, that he was saying something very, very significant? Well, in order to understand that, we have to go to Daniel 7. So turn in your Bibles to Daniel 7. And you recall that, that Daniel was a member of the northern kingdom of Israel, also called Judah in the Old Testament. And Judah was captured by the Babylonians. Years before, the southern kingdom of Israel, also referred to as Israel, was captured by the Assyrians. When a nation took over a nation back then, they took you all, everybody with you. Uh, and Daniel had to go to Babylon, and there he became an advisor to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And through Daniel's efforts, King Nebuchadnezzar became a believer in God. But in this verse, in chapter 7, Daniel is having a dream. And if you look at this, it's talking about things that happen in later times that haven't happened yet, that are talked about in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. In chapter uh, 7, verse 9, Daniel is referring to the Ancient of Days. That's God. God is the Ancient of Days. And he's, he's talking about a dream that he had about the end times. And then if you look at verse 13 in Daniel 7, he says, I was watching the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. When you read those verses, what do you think about? You think about the rapture. And Daniel here is calling the Messiah the Son of Man. So I just thought that was just so interesting that, that Jesus, the first book of the New Testament, which was the first book written, uh, Bible scholars believe that Daniel was written in 50 A.D., which would be about 17 years after Christ was crucified, resurrected, and went back to heaven. The first book in the Bible, the first reference to the Son of Man is a reference to Daniel, and Jesus is telling everybody who could hear I am the Messiah. The scribes should have got it. I understand why the disciples didn't get it. But here is the first time in the first book in the New Testament that Jesus is saying, I am the Messiah. I am the Son of Man. I am the one who was predicted in the Old Testament. And the scribe didn't get it. And I wonder if 
the scribe would have gotten it, whether he would have become a follower of Jesus Christ, because none of the scribes ever followed Jesus. So I just, uh, I thought that was a great, um, uh, a great fact, a great kind of inside scripture. And, you know, uh, throughout my life, uh, I'm guided by this verse, that man plans his ways, but God directs his path. It's been true in my life, and it was true in, in, in our lives, and collectively, when you and I, uh, as we grow in this sanctification process and we become more like Jesus Christ, we become more obedient to God the Father through Christ the Son, we will get blessed, not material necessarily, but like God blessed Pam and I when I got baptized with a son and later with a daughter and uh, blessed us with being participants in this church for 40 years. Um, it's, it's been a great pleasure to be part of this church and uh, it's been a great pleasure and an honor and a privilege. Thank you, Pastor Scott, for allowing me to come here and, and, and teach a little bit. Uh, if you're not in a, a Bible study, I would recommend you come to ours. We have three pastors teaching there, not me. I'm not a pastor, but there are three pastors that do teach there from time to time. So if you don't have a Bible study, and I don't want you to leave your Bible study and come to mine. Well, that would be stealing sheep, and we don't do that here. So come uh, to a Bible study, and uh, you make connections, and you make relationships and interact. And I, I would say one final thing uh, before I close in prayer. Uh, ladies, if you want to be involved in a life-changing ministry, there's, there's this ministry called WARM. Pam's involved in it. Kay Moody heads it up. Kay, hold your hand up. Come on, Kay. Oh, she doesn't want to. Uh, but these are ladies, uh, and it's four women. I've been blessed to be able to go out there and speak five times, but uh, it's really a, a ministry for women. And there are women there who, through uh, varied circumstances, have come under the influence of drugs and or alcohol. And through the power and the glory of these ladies who come and share the gospel, lives are being changed. Uh, Lives are being changed, and these ladies are overcoming their addiction. They are becoming new creatures in Christ. They are becoming part of our fellowship. And they are becoming solid citizens, all because of the ministry, through the power of the Holy Spirit, but through the ministry of these ladies who are devoted. And uh, the only requirements are you have to be a member of the church for six months. You need to come out on Monday nights when they have church. And... Uh, Anyhow, it's a great ministry. You contribute in, in, in money as well, but it's a great ministry, and uh, we, just, we just thank God for the ladies who are involved in this ministry. And if you're looking for a ministry, you know, we are to be workers. We are to be involved in, uh, not that works is involved in, 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 in salvation. For by grace you are saved, not of yourselves. It is, a work, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But we know that True faith and true, true belief requires us to be involved in works, in good works. Faith without works is dead. And that's a great ministry to be involved in. And it's, uh, it's having tremendous results. And it's worthy of your uh, consideration. So with that, I will uh, close with prayer. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Father, for this time and this place and this opportunity to share the gospel. Thank you for the Son of Man. Thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you for all that he does for, for me and my family and for everyone here. We pray, Father, that you would continue to bless this church. We pray, Father, that we would continue to grow in the word and the truth and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We pray that we would continue to minister and provide time, talent, and tithes to the ministries of this church, both domestic and abroad. We pray for Pastor Scott as he goes to the Philippines, as he goes to Japan, as, he, as we support missions all, all around this world. And we pray, Father, that we would continue to be a, a force for light and goodness in Christ. And it is in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.